church. Great to see you this morning. Uh, I'm wondering this morning, how many of you have uh, ever experienced buyer's remorse? Um, <laughs> by your laughter, I guess that you have. Uh, you know what it is, right? Buyer's remorse is uh, when you buy something that is promised uh, satisfaction, something that you've looked for and you go, That's a ne- that would fill a need in my life, and so you buy that. However, that product doesn't deliver on what it promised, and so you feel a little bit ripped off. Uh, maybe you feel a little bit frustrated. Uh, maybe even as you're thinking about this product that you got duped into buying, you think, man, this thing is useless. Hmm. Ever had that? Yeah. We've been working our way through the book of James, uh, and today we are uh, turning our attention to chapter 2, starting at verse 14. And it seems like as we read this passage that James is a little bit kind of maybe offering us a warning against experiencing buyer's remorse in our lives. Um, except the stakes are far higher than, than just a temporary frustration with a product that we've bought. Uh, he, he's talking about a buyer's remorse when it comes to our faith. In this passage, he's talking about two types of faith. He talks about one faith, uh, that is a dead faith, uh, that's useless, and another faith, uh, that is a saving faith. Um, And I suppose if James was here this morning, perhaps he might lead off with this question. What kind of faith do you have? And then maybe he would give us a test this morning. Uh, in, In fact, if you look at what we've seen already in James, you could see the book of James as just one test after another. You go back to our first week in James in the chapter 1, verses 2 to 12, and we could say it was the test of trials in our lives. Uh, You could see the next uh, section, chapter uh, 1, verses 13 to 18, as the test of temptation in our lives. Uh, That it would reveal and it would indicate whether we have a saving faith or a dead faith. Uh, Maybe uh, that next section, verses 19 to 27, would be the test of our response to the Word of God. Last time uh, we were talking about James, Jason uh, mentioned this in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Maybe we could say that that was the test of our response to the poor and needy. And so now we get to chapter 2, starting in verse 14, and James brings up the test of works. In our lives. Or, depending on the translation, the test of good deeds in your life. And by works, he is talking about our righteous action, our, our, our behavior that is obedient to God's word. In other words, he is getting at how we live proves who we are. James, in this passage, is kind of pulling all of these temptations together and as he already brought up in chapter 1, verses 22, uh, he's going to further this thought. James 1, we read these words. He says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. 
In other words, James was saying here, a a person who just looks at the Word and and they see their problem because the the Word has revealed that to them, the Spirit has revealed the problem in their lives, but this person looks at that but does nothing about it. They just walk away and they forget about it. Dead faith. James says, no, we have to be doers of the Word. Uh, We need to continue to look into the mirror of God's Word And make the changes that he reveals to us. Putting it into practice in our daily lives. And so James is bringing that topic up again here in James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Now what I want us to do, and to remember, that James is writing to Jewish readers. In chapter 1, verse 1, we read, "...to the twelve tribes that are scattered among the nations." And so these people that he was writing to, They had identified themselves with the Christian faith, and some of them were genuine uh, followers, but others of them were less than genuine. And so I wonder if that's why James is putting all these tests in this writing to say, here, this is how you can tell if your faith is genuine or not. You see, those Jews had gone from one extreme to another extreme in regards to works. Uh, For a long time, these Jewish readers had been living under a a huge amount of stress. Uh, They had been raised to to believe in a religious system that was based upon works. And so you can imagine that these folks living under this stress of good works, uh, a system that was impossible to live up under, uh, a system that believed in salvation, Uh, that was dependent upon your works, about keeping the law perfectly, you could imagine the burden and the guilt and the shame that they must have lived under for so long because they couldn't live up to this rule that they were supposed to. But then we swing the other way. Along comes somebody who's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, a, a gospel of grace. It's all about freedom and it's about joy. It's a salvation that comes through faith alone. And you can imagine the folks that have come from here all the way to here and they're going, yes, finally, right? I mean, who wouldn't want to live in this place free from the law of legalism? Hmm. And could it be that James was writing here to these folks who misunderstood that their freedom went too far the other way, that they went from legalism to abusing that freedom, and they were mistaken to understand that they didn't, you know, if works weren't required for salvation, maybe works weren't required at all. And could it be that James was recognizing in the congregation to which he wrote that some people were trying to embrace a salvation that was simply about just believing the thoughts and the facts without requiring anything from them. Actually, that doesn't sound like a far stretch for us, does it? I think that's been something that's been embraced from one generation to the next all the way through to our present day. And so James is giving us a warning here. He says, not just enough to believe... But unless that belief transforms our life, it's a dead faith. 
James goes on to point three characteristics of a dead faith before he shows us two examples, two characters from our Old Testament who had a saving faith. What are the characteristics of a dead faith? First one he describes is a dead faith is identified in an empty confession. Verse 14, he says, what good is it? What's the benefit, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? In other words, if someone comes into our congregation and, and makes a bold claim that they have faith, that they believe in God, that they believe in Christ, they say that they believe in His death and His resurrection, but there is no product in their life, there's no evidence in their life, that there's no pattern of good works in their life, that there's no demonstration of a changed life, James asks the question, what good is that? What good is that faith? The answer is obvious. The answer is, it's no good at all. If when true faith is placed in Christ and we receive a new nature, that new nature will make itself visible in our actions and in our attitudes. What will we see? Now, Maybe it's a good place to warn us. Uh, let's not be too quick to think about other people that need to hear the message. Ah, somebody needs to be here to hear this. But let's do more examination in our own hearts. We maybe quickly turn to Galatians chapter 5, and we read about the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Or if we just looked at James, what we've learned so far in James, uh, maybe we would see these types of things that would be fruit in our lives. That we might see our perseverance, we might see patience and, and how we're victoriously enduring through trials as a good work that's demonstrating our faith in Jesus Christ. We look at 18, verses 18 to 20 in chapter 1 and we might see good works as, a, as an eagerness of hearing God's word being intentional about putting God's word into our lives. Or we'd look at verse 21 of the same chapter, and we might assume that purity of life, getting rid of the moral filth in our lives, as another work of this transforming work that God is doing in our lives. Maybe we'd read in verse 22, and we would see the fact that obedience to Scripture is, obe is evidence of a transformed work in my life. Verse 27, again, we would see that love and compassion for the needy, uh, keeping oneself from being polluted by the world as evidence of transforming work that is taking place in our lives. And then if we fast forward to chapter 3, maybe we would see things like how we control our tongue or, or, or looking at chapter 4 and we would see humility as demonstrations of a changed life. Because if we have a saving faith, these are characteristics that will begin to, to develop and grow in our lives. But James says, if there is no evidence of this, no evidence of change in your life, can such a faith save them? Again, the answer is an obvious no. That faith doesn't save them. But then there's some here this morning that would go, oh, wait a minute, hold on, wait a minute. Something doesn't quite sound right to me. I mean, it sounds here like James is disagreeing with Paul. 
because we know Paul's words, right? In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, we read his words that say, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Uh, so it seems to me, it seems like we're reading in Scripture that Paul is saying not by works, but James is saying by works, by good deeds. What's going on with that? Let me suggest to you this morning that James and Paul aren't disagreeing, but rather they are standing back to back and reasoning against two common enemies. Paul on the one side is reasoning against people who who want salvation to be just about what we do, just about our works. And James is reasoning with those who want salvation but doesn't demand anything from us. Paul is saying salvation is only by grace. James is agreeing with that and saying, yes, salvation is only by grace, but it produces works. Hear the difference? Okay. No argument between Paul and James. Paul is arguing against legalistic salvation, and James is arguing against thinking that you can just believe and no change has to happen, or no change will happen in your life. And so the first characteristic of a dead faith is an empty confession. The second characteristic, James says, uh, a second characteristic of dead faith is false compassion. Listen to this, verse 15. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes. Uh, It means that they're poorly clothed. Uh, They don't have enough to stay warm. And they don't have daily food. And if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, those are empty words. Uh, They're rejecting that person who is cold and hungry. Uh, In fact, maybe their words are even a little bit sarcastic. Uh, Maybe they communicate an indifference to the need that is before them. Maybe it almost kind of comes across like this, hey, you know what? Don't bother me with your problems. In fact, as you go, I sure hope you can find somebody to help you. James says, if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is that? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. What good is that kind of faith? James says it's it's not good. If you're a new creation in Christ, if you have the Spirit of God living in you, it would be contradictory for us to live a life that would be void of any compassion, any love, any concern for someone in need. See, people with dead faith are not concerned about being the answer to someone else's need. We might be able to recite scripture. We might know a lot about God. But James says, that person's failure to meet the real needs demonstrates a dead, unresponsive faith. Now, none of us in this room are perfect. We won't always reflect Christ well in our lives. There are times in our lives where we will ignore the prompting of the Holy Spirit in our lives. 
But if we are regularly unmoved by the needs that are around us, then it would be time for us to evaluate our faith. James says dead faith is marked by false compassion. Uh, And then he goes on to say a third one. Uh, A third characteristic of dead faith is shown by our shallow conviction. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. Uh, And if I was to wager a guess, I I would guess James is the someone in this verse. Uh, But because James is a humble person, he doesn't want to boast about his deeds. I think he refers to himself in the third person here. And he says, a person with true faith, uh, they will have an argument or, or, or a debate with somebody who doesn't have real faith. And, and he will say to that person, you have faith, uh, I have works. Show me your faith by, uh, without works, and I will show you my faith by what I do. In other words, James is saying to this other person, he says, go ahead and prove that you have faith without any deeds. Go ahead and I'll wait. James says, you you can't do that. You can't say you have faith, but then not show it. You cannot demonstrate saving faith without evidence. And so this debate goes on with James and this other person. A person might say, I have faith. I believe in God. And James says, you do? Really? I mean, you might have intellectual faith. Uh, Maybe logically. But James goes on to say this. You believe that there is one God good. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. He says, you foolish person. That's pretty direct, isn't it? You want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Then he goes on to say this, listen, you believe that there is one God? Good, even the demons believe that. You see, during Jesus' earthly ministry, demons submitted to Jesus' authority. Uh, They declared him to be the Son of God. They believed in the Trinity. They believed in the deity of Christ. They believed that Jesus died for the sins of the world, that he was raised and that he ascended to the Father's right hand and that he is coming back one day. In fact, you could say that the demons had an orthodox faith. A demon's understanding of God is probably more extensive than our understanding of God. But is a demon saved? All the knowledge that they have about Jesus doesn't do them any good because believing the truth without obeying the truth doesn't save anyone. Not a demon, not humanity. If we only nod in agreement, but we aren't moved out of our self-centered rebellion, if we're not moved to a God-centered obedience, then we need to evaluate our faith. Is it living or is it dead? You see, with all of that knowledge that demons had, they trembled at the thought of God. Why? Because they understood the consequences of failing to respond rightly to Jesus. Their kind of faith produces no peace. They operate in a static of, or, or a permanent uh, a place of panic. 
because they know the certainty of what true doctrine teaches. In fact, demons responded to Jesus in Matthew by saying this, what do you want with us, son of God? They shouted, have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Shallow conviction, false compassion, empty confession are characteristics of a dead faith and it benefits us nothing. And James is making an argument here that says, listen, you cannot separate faith and works. The two must go together. Works are a natural result, are the proof of a saving faith. Saving faith includes a desire to change, a desire to live and to walk in obedience to God's truth. And if your faith doesn't generate a desire like that, it's useless. It's dead. If it doesn't move you to put aside the things of the old life, it's a dead faith. And so even Paul in 2 Corinthians, he says this, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, he says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Now, we read that verse a lot of times when we take communion. We say, examine yourselves before you take the elements this morning. This is not talking about a time when you raised your hand to say yes to Jesus. But rather, he's talking here about examining ourselves by looking at the product in our life. By seeing and and, and observing the evidence of our faith in action. What do you see? What do you see in your life as you examine? You know what? As we examine our lives, it will be encouraging to us to see evidence. To see evidence of faith in action as we look into our lives. But it will be a critical warning to us if we don't. Because saving faith is revealed in a changed life that responds to God's truth. Faith, in a sense, is like the wind. You can't see it, but you can see the evidence of it. And then with that, James turns the page for us to illustrate what living, what saving faith looks like from the lives of Abraham and Rahab. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did? when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Abraham was the symbol uh, of all that was Jewish. Honored among the Jews, he was the standard of righteousness. But more than that, I think what James was getting at here is to let us know that Abraham is the father of all who believe in God. God had already declared Abraham righteous when when years later, or years earlier rather, God told him that here's the promise. You're going to be a great nation. And Abraham was credited as righteous at that time. But James identifies that Abraham was proved righteous by his works. 
when he offered up his son Isaac. Uh, That's when the whole world could see the reality of Abraham's faith. Abraham wasn't a perfect man. Oh, we know that. We can read about his failures in in Genesis chapter 15 through to chapter 22 or 25 or so. Uh, We can see his weak faith at times and we can see the lies in his life and we can even read about his adultery in those chapters. But even in the midst of those failures, there was in his life a pattern of believing God that led to this incredible act of trust. where he would believe that God could raise his son from the dead even though there had never been a resurrection up until that point. And so Abraham was treated as righteous, but he demonstrated that righteousness in his willingness to sacrifice his son. We can only be justified by faith. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, God gifts us with righteousness. He puts righteousness into our account. Uh, The idea here again is that our humanity is bankrupt. We are spiritually bankrupt. We are morally bankrupt. But when we put our faith in Christ, God deposits into our account all the necessary righteousness that makes us suitable to live in the presence of God. Righteousness. We don't have it on our own. We don't earn it. We receive it as a gift from God. But the way that we can see that we are genuinely saved is by seeing a pattern of obedience in our lives. That's the idea of Abraham's faith being complete by what he did. The root of our salvation is faith. But the fruit of our salvation is works. Abraham says was a friend of God. How do you know? We can tell by the way he lives. We can tell by the way he acts. We can tell by the way he thinks. We can tell by the way that he behaves. We can tell by the way he uses a walk. He's a godly man. No time to talk. The second example that James uses is Rahab. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous by what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? Uh, When you read this, this is such a powerful contrast between Abraham and Rahab. Uh, And I think that's maybe why James uses these two examples. You see, Abraham was a Jew. Rahab was a Gentile. Abraham was a man... Rahab was a woman, Abraham was a great leader, Rahab was a common follower, Abraham was at the top of the social order, and Rahab at the bottom. So many contrasts between their two lives. However, when you read through Hebrews chapter 11, the list of the heroes of our faith, both of their names are listed in Hebrews 11. Read Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus. Both of their names are in the genealogy. I mean, can you believe that? The Messiah came through the line of Rahab, the prostitute. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know if that's the line that I would have chosen to have the Messiah come through. 
And James writes this, in the same way. In the same way as Abraham, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? I mean, just like Abraham, Rahab was justified. She was considered righteous by her deeds. Giving lodging to the spies and sent them off into a different direction. I mean, you can read the whole story in Joshua chapter 2. But I want to point out a couple things from that story. You see, Rahab lived in Jericho. And I want to be careful here because I recognize we have a young audience listening. But I think it's good for us to understand something here. She ran an inn for other women who also had similar careers as she did. And they had guests that would come and stay overnight at their inn. And that is how they made their living. And so into this land, these godly people came, these people of God came, and they were there because God was going to give them all this land. And they're going to take over Jericho, over Rahab's city. But before they do, they send some spies in there to kind of spy out the land and to see where the weak spots are and all of that kind of stuff, right? And so these spies go into the city and they stay in the inn that is owned by Rahab. Now, they are not there for those purposes. But they are there simply to lodge for the night. Rahab takes them in and she finds out who they are. And in Joshua chapter 2 verse 9, we read these words. This is, these are her words. I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, on, on my people, she says, so that all of us who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings and, uh, of the Amorites, east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, she says, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. Okay, but now listen to this. For the Lord your God is the God of heaven, above and the earth below. When, Ab- uh, when Rahab believed that, she was justified before God. She believed that God was the one true God. She believed that God was the God of miracles, the God who had led his people out of Egypt. She believed that God was the God of power who had defeated the Amorite kings. She believed all that she knew about God at that time the true God, and it was credited to her account as righteousness. In that point, she was justified in her faith. But then her faith was made evident, James says in verse 25, when she gave lodging to the spies and then sent them on their way in another direction so that the soldiers who were coming for those spies, they would have killed them. But she sends the the spies this way, sends the soldiers that way. Now, the question we often hear when it comes to this story is, but Rahab told a lie. Was that right? 
The answer would be no. Of course it's not right to tell a lie, ever. But look where Rahab's coming from. She's coming out of a secular culture uh, with uh, secular ethics who doesn't understand the priority of truth-telling that God has. And so she is working with whatever knowledge that she has at the time, and it's limited at that time. And so we don't justify her lie. She's a product of her environment, product of her fallen nature, and I believe that in time she would come to understand the value that God puts on truth. And that she would, maybe in the future, if she ever had that situation come again, uh, that she would trust in God instead of in her own ability to get out of situations. But here was Rahab, who comes to believe in the one true God, and righteousness is credited to her account. Another example of God's amazing grace. But now watch this. When given the opportunity to demonstrate her faith in God, she puts her life on the line. See that? Because if she would have been found out that she sent the spies that way and lied to the soldiers, it would have meant death for her. And so she hides the spies and helps them escape. But before she, uh, they leave... She says this, listen, when you come back and you take over my city, please remember me, save me and my family. Because we want to be part of the community of faith that worships the one true God. And so Rahab demonstrates her faith by her works. Her lie wasn't necessary. I mean, who knows what God would have done to to bring her out of that if she hadn't have lied. But we won't fault her for that. That's all she knew at the time. What kind of works proves true salvation? You know, I don't think it's necessarily going to church. I don't even think it's necessarily reading our Bible every day for, for a couple minutes. Although those things are very good. And we need to do those things, I think. But in both Abraham and Rahab's case, the proof was putting their life and their dreams and their hopes on the line. That's the kind of work I believe God wants us to understand and to demonstrate true faith in our lives. I wonder if he wants us to demonstrate that we are so supremely committed to God that our confession of faith would lead us to a radical sacrificial life. A commitment to God so deep that it would move us to a greater compassion for the people around us, the people outside of our comfort zone. That we wouldn't walk away from a need that is expressed, that we knew that we had the skills or the resources to help. A kind of faith that leads to a deep conviction We don't have to be asked or wait to be asked. But we would step out and we would step in and we'd say, I'll do it. A faith, our faith is made real. When we go through the valleys and we cling to the Lord. When we give up our selfish ambitions because we sense God is calling us to something different. And so James 
would challenge us to examine ourselves. Is our faith living or is our faith dead? That's the question James is asking us. Is it making a visible difference in your life? Compelling us to do good works.